Hi, welcome to the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. Today is a first in a series of episodes about the Mongol invasions. In the winter of 1218, 10,000 Mongol troops, accompanied by 20,000 Eastern Jurchen, cross the Yalu River into Korea. In quick succession, they take the walled fort of Hwaju, which was being held hostage by the Kitan. They travel through the heavy snow to Mengju and take that fort, then Sonju, then Dokju, all formerly occupied by the Kitan. As the snow gets too deep to travel through, Mongol Marshal Ha Chen makes camp, then sends an, an interpreter with a severely worded message for the Goryeo. He proclaims that he has been sent by Genghis Khan to subdue the Gitan, who had been plundering Goryeo for the past three years. And their task having been complete, the great Khan now commanded Goryeo to pledge to a, quote, older brother, younger brother relationship. And just like that, the Mongols subjugated the Koreans, changing the course of history forever. Well, not quite. Not just like that. I mean, yes, this is how it happened, but let's get some historical context here. Like, how did the Mongols get there? And why? First off, I want to mention that I based a lot of today's episode on a book called Korea, the Mongol Invasions, written by W.E. W. E. Henthorne in 1963 and published in the Netherlands by Leyden E.J. Brill. Let's do a quick review. You may have noticed that I spent a ton of time, like three episodes worth, on the military coup of Korea. Take a listen if you haven't already. There's tons of domestic problems like dead kings, rebelling monks, and uprising slaves. But I didn't focus so much on what was happening in the rest of the world. Obviously, you can't compartmentalize internal and external issues. The stuff happening in the region outside of Goryeo definitely had an impact on its internal problems and vice versa. So I'm sorry if I made it seem like Goryeo's internal conflicts existed in a vacuum. But my reason for that is that the events happening outside of Goryeo at the time were so monumental that we have to dedicate separate episodes to them, which is what we're doing now. In fact, while Goryeo was dealing with these internal messes, there were rumblings across the continent of Asia that would have consequences much larger and more profound than any of Goryeo's internal disputes. And in a nutshell, it was basically the rise of the Mongols. But to understand how that rise came about, and how it impacted Goryeo in particular, takes a bit of explanation. We need to rewind about a century. I promise to make it brief, and I promise to make it keep it interesting. First of all, remember two centuries earlier, in 1021, Goryeo general Gang Gamchan helped defeat the Gitan Lao a third and final time. In 1125, the Jin Empire, which are the Jurchen people, later to become the Manjus, defeat the Liao, causing mass migration of Gitan to Goryeo. After a century of relative domestic calm, Goryeo has now neglected and mistreated its poor many of whom are presumably of Gitan descent. It's going too far to speculate that these descendants are the ones who instigated all the 
the rebellions by the slaves and the Baekjong and the poor during the military era. But it's not a far stretch to say that having a bunch of these originally ethnic minorities, many categorized as Baekjong, many not having any citizen status, citizenship status, having them squatting on Korean land certainly didn't help when foreign invaders came calling. In 1170, the military coup happens. Goryeo descends into chaos. 1189, Yi Min, the despot born of slaves, drains the straight state treasury. In 1196, Choe Chung-hun establishes stability by taking a firm grip and establishes a system of rule. But in order to do that, he has to spend more money on troops to protect himself and his new system rather than the kingdom itself. So he's funneling money, or whatever money is left anyway, into building his own private army. Meanwhile, the troops and provinces that truly need it, namely the ones in the north, are left high and dry. All this time, across that wide expanse of northern Asia, the fierce tribes of nomads are fighting amongst each other, and in Darwinian fashion, they are getting stronger by the generation. In 1209, the Mongols recommence war against their former subjugators, the Jin Empire, causing both revolts by the newly emboldened Khitan, who were also subjugated by the Jin, and defections by Jurchens. In 1211, Khitan prince Yelu Chukai rebels against the Jin and seizes part of the Laodong area. The Laodong area is basically roughly northwest of the border, the northern border of Korea. Submitting to the Mongols, he then proclaims himself ruler of Lao. But he was ousted by Yesupu, and he asks Genghis for help. So now there are two factions of Gitan within the Empire of the Jin. The Jin respond to the Gitan revolt by naming Pushan Wanu, a Jurchen, as pacification minister of that era. area. With 40,000 men, Wanu is still defeated by Chukai, the deposed Gitan prince, in late 1214. Meanwhile, the Jin are on the run from the Mongols and move their capital from Beijing to Kaifeng. This is a huge deal because Kaifeng was once the capital of Song, China, the most advanced civilization in the world at the time. Now it's in the hands of the Jurchen. But in spring of 1215, when Mongol general Mukali attacked the Jin in Beijing, conquering that city for the Mongols, Wanu uses that as an opportunity to rebel against the Jin himself. Wanu, that guy who was placed by the Jin to suppress Gitan rebellion, now himself has rebelled against his own people. He uses the eastern capital of the Jin, Laoyang, as his base and declares it, quote-unquote, the Great Jurchen or Eastern Jurchen state. In spring 1216, the Gitan fled south before being stopped by a Jin army. This Jin army overran Wanu's southern border. Yasupu was murdered by Chinu, who then took over the Gitan. At this point, the Gitan held the territory from Haichu to Uiju. Uiju is one of the north northernmost cities on the border of Korea at the time, right across the river from the right across the Yalu River. So this is confusing without a map, but imagine a map of Asia. At the very top, you have the Mongols. 
who are now encroaching southward. Right below them are the Jin, who are kind of fleeing the Mongols and applying pressure downward, southward again. Below the Jin are the Southern Song, who have been who have been pushed down from the north by all these invaders. And somewhere in the middle of the Jin Empire, somewhere in that middle, is like a huge contingent of Gitan people who have been enslaved almost by the Jin Empire, but now are trying to break free. In Ottoman winter of 1216, the Mongols, accompanied by Chukai, the Gitan prince, chase the other Gitan group from Haichau to the Gordia borders. That's when the Mongols attack and launch an attack upon the Gitan on an island, Tafuying, near Weiju. By the way, I looked up Tafuying on Google Maps. It's this tiny island, and I can't believe it made its way into the historical record. So the Gitan, stuck on this tiny island, surrounded by Mongols, asks Gordia for assistance. Gordia refuses them, so the Gitan then overrun the Gordia border with 90,000 people. And not just soldiers, 90,000, a whole nation of people, basically, men, women, and children, because they were basically, they had basically declared their freedom from the Jin Empire, and now, en masse, they're moving southward. The Mongols then withdrew, not giving chase into Gordia. And if I had to guess, there was some very important strategic reasons for this. Wanu, who, remember, had declared his own eastern Jurchen state in Liaoyang, submitted to the Mongols. After the Mongols withdrew from Gordia, after having chased the Gitan there, Wanu expands his reach towards the Yalu. So, basically, after the Gitan have fled southward across the river, Wanu moved in to fill that void. The Jin continued to strengthen in Liaodong, thus driving Wanu eastward along the Yalu to the Tumen. So as soon as Wanu has moved into the area that the Gitan have left, he is now being pushed eastward by the Jin. Meanwhile, those 90,000 Gitan continued to drive south into Gordia in 1217, pillaging multiple cities. At this point, Gordia's defenses are a mess. The country is being led by a military dictator and all the resources have been concentrated in the capital. The leader of this Kitan contingent becomes a revolving door caused by assassinations. The leader Chinu is then killed by Chin Shan, who is then killed by Chin Shi, who is then killed by Tunku Yu, who is then killed by Han Shi. The Kitan reach the gates of the capital Kaesan. So, so bad were the defenses of Gorya at the time, that they were able to make it all the way to the gates of the capital. But finally, they are driven back by Kim Chui-ryo to Pyongan, basically the northwest province of Korea. But instead of leaving the country, they regroup and then pivot eastwards towards the Tumen River, where they're able to re recruit reinforcements. So in this kind of wild frontier of northern Korea, there were groups of fellow countrymen already existing. The Gitan then turned back around, and rather than attacking Gordia towards Gesang from the northwest, they now attack from the northeast to towards Sogyong, the western capital. 
capturing cities including Waju, Goju, Mengju, and Dokju before reaching Gangdong. And of course, these are the, the cities that I mentioned in the beginning, the ones that the Mongols took. So imagine a picture of Korea. Now imagine 90,000 Khitan invading from the northwest corner. They are they make it all the way down to the capital, which is almost halfway down the peninsula. They are finally repelled by Kim Chui-ryo, who then drives them back to where they came from in the northwest of Korea, but not past the border, because let's face it, Goryeo just can't afford to do that anymore. So he just leaves this huge group of people there sitting there in northwest Korea, and rather them going back northward, they're now stuck because Wanu has moved in. So now they make a huge, wide U-turn, turning eastward, and then they start attacking the frontier towns in the northeast of Korea. In early 1218, the Koreans began the slow process of finally driving the, back the Gitan at Gangdong. And they seem to be making progress. But it's a little too, it's too little too late, because in the winter of 1218, the Mongols appeared. And this is where we left off from the story at the top of the episode. So, it's a winter of 1218. Unlike most armies, the Mongols preferred to attack during the winter because the frozen rivers provided roadways for their horses. Now think of that for a second. It's an army that prefers fighting in the dead of winter in a place like North Korea, which has like bitter winters akin to Siberia. This is definitely not the French army circa 1812. You know, the Napoleon's army that chased Russia's armies into the heart of Russia during the dead of winter and basically all died. These Mongols are a different breed. They're tough. I also think the Mongols prefer the winter because summertime is an important time for them to practice their hunting games. You might find this a bit frivolous, but actually Mongol war strategy is first practiced and honed during these hunts. So it's a bitter Korean winter. The rivers are frozen over and the Mongols are wearing their filthy fur coats and fur hats, which they probably have never washed before. 10,000 Mongol troops commanded by Hachen, 20,000 Wanu troops commanded by Wanyan Su Yuan, and they crush the Gitan at Huaju, then Mengju, then Sunju, then Dokju. They have their sights set on Gangdong when a snowstorm makes roads impassable. Gangdong is just one fort away from the western capital of Sagang, or modern-day Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea today. It's a major population center, so the Mongols have really gotten deep into Korean territory. So they send interpreter Chao Chengsheng, leading a party of 12, to Jochung, Marshal of the Northwest Frontier District and Goryeo Commander, to demand troops and provisions. Their demands were great. They want money. They want troops. They want food and supplies. And most importantly, they want Goryeo to become the quote-unquote younger brother of the Great Khan. This scary message, of course, causes a flurry of activity among those in the Korean government. I mean, who wouldn't be scared of any communicado from the Mongol army? Everyone in, the, everyone in Asia knew by that point what the Mongols were capable of. 
So Marshal Zhou is sending these endless dispatches to the Goryeo court in the capital, asking, what should I do? Marshal Zhou thinks Goryeo should cave in to the Mongol demands. Kim Chiryeo, the guy that drove back the, uh, the Gitan in the first place, agrees, saying, quote-unquote, today is, price, is precisely when the nation wins or loses. But the Goryeo court is not so willing. They say, quote, the Mongols are the most inhuman of the northern barbarians. Moreover, they have never been on good terms with us. All this hand-wringing just causes a delay in response, making the Mongols angry. Finally, a decision is made to accommodate the Mongol demands, probably most vehemently championed by Marshal Zhou himself. Zhou's first task is to choose the right man to deliver the goods to the Mongols and spy on them at the same time. Kim In-gyung, a subordinate official, begs him to go, but Marshal Zhou tells him, quote, Your plans are simply to follow what your superiors say. You are not accustomed to go spying recklessly. How can you presume to ask to do so now? Unquote. Kim responds, quote, I have heard that the Mongols have taken up battle positions. We should take example from the ancient militarists Sun and Wu. When I was young, I read the six books and am well acquainted with them. Thus do I presume to ask. Ah, when in doubt, in Korea, demonstrate your scholarship. It's the old Confucian ideal of education. And sure enough, that worked. So Zhou sends the young Kim with 1,000 troops and 1,000 bushels of rice to the Mongols. Kim arrives in camp just in time to watch the combined Mongol Jurchen force attack the Gitan in the walled city of Deju. The Mongol commander and Jurchen commander, Ha Chen and Zhu Yuan, respectively, welcomed Kim with a big feast and music at their camp at Duck Mountain, west of the city. They even gave each other a show. Kim formed his men into a military square outside the gates of the besieged city. The Mongol and Jurchen commanders climbed a height to get a better vantage point. Funnily enough, the Gitan themselves, no doubt curious as to what was going on outside the walls, lined the city walls to watch. 46 Mongol soldiers performed in mock combat. Gim, in response, had his men demonstrate their martial skills, and then lining up 20 archers, had them discharge their arrows into the city in one single volley. Of course, the Gitan spectators deserted the wall in a great hurry. So it was a real love fest between the Mongols and the Koreans. In early 1219, preparations were made to take the last Gitan stronghold, Gangdong. The Mongols and the young Gim were now joined by the senior officials, Gim Chiryeo, whose official title was Director of Affairs for the Commission of Men and Horses, and Han Guangyun, who led a large Korean force of cavalry and crossbow units. Another feast is thrown by the Mongol and Jurchens for these new attendees. There's plenty of flattery being thrown back and forth between the Mongols and the Goryeo seniors, no doubt aided by alcohol. For example, Ha Chen remarks on Gim Chidya's distinctive appearance. 
Kim Chiria was known was recorded to be six feet five inches tall, with a long flowing beard. It was said that when he put on his full dress, two maidservants had to lift up his beard so that he could put on his girdle. Ha Chen said, and I paraphrase, "I've invaded six nations, and so I've seen lots of noblemen, but then I saw you. How can it be that you are so remarkable? That's why I trust you." I look at the troops under your command, and they too are like members of my own house. This is also where Cho and Joe and Kim note, with some amount of horror, the Mongol custom of eating meat. The meat was stabbed with a sharp knife and then sw- swiftly packed, passed back and forth between the diners, each taking a bite and passing it back. Henthorn notes, of the Goryeo soldiers, it is related. There were none who were not reluctant to eat in this fashion. It's also here where Henthorn notes that the Goryeo commanders must have agreed to the Mongols' terms of an older brother-younger brother relationship. Of course, this is not the kind of decision that can be brokered by any military official, no matter how high up. So they must have had such permission prior to this feast. Marching in this force was Kim Jide. A young conscript from Chengdu, who had taken his father's place in the ranks, he would later rise through the ranks in the military and become a prominent civil official. While the other soldiers had strange beasts painted on the tops of their shields, Jide had written a simple poem on his shield expressing the idea that loyalty to the nation and filial piety could both be cultivated by an action, action such as his own. The records note the very effective way in which the Mongols took the city of Gangdong. First, imagine the fortress from a bird's eye point of view. Now, draw an imaginary circle around the fortress, large enough so that there are around 300 paces, or roughly 1,200 feet, or in, an, in another way, 400 yards, between the city walls and the circle edge. Troops were arranged around this imaginary line. One quarter was lined with Mongols, another with Jurchen, another with Korean. The last remaining quarter of the circle is empty. In the morning, all the commanders rode to a meeting at this empty quarter of the circle. Mongol commander Ha Chen had a trench ten feet wide and ten feet de- deep dug along this quarter from the south gate to the east gate. There isn't more detail on the battle itself, but the effect presumably was to tighten the noose and for- force out all the inhabitants towards the empty dish. Sure enough, forty Gitan commanders came over the wall to submit, and their chiefs pleaded to the Mongols. Then the gates opened, and around fifty thousand civilians came out and surrendered. In the end, the Gitan leader. The last man standing after that that round robin of assassinations, Han Shi, hangs himself. His wife, and the top 100 officials from the Gitan were beheaded immediately. The Mongol commander Ha Chen then said to the Koreans, "We have come 10,000 li and combined our strength with you to smash the bandits. This is the fortune of a thousand years." Furthermore, the Mongol commanders pledged, "Quote." Our two nations shall eternally be brothers, and the descendants of ten thousand generations will not forget this day. Unquote.
Mongol commander Hachen gave the Gordia forces 700 women and young boys and returned some 200 Korean captives. Ha Chen then selected girls who were around 15 years old and gave nine each to Cho and Kim. He took the remaining prisoners. It is recorded later that Jo Chung took those Gitan prisoners and t- placed them in districts on unoccupied wasteland, where they eventually settled and became farmers. Perhaps these were the first Baekjong. Goryeo sent gifts to the Mongol commanders along with a missive, which is a marvel of diplomacy. So I'm going to read selections from this, and I'll pause a little bit and kind of let you first draw your own conclusions. Quote, Our nation has since long been invaded by the Gitan, and this sickness in our very midst we were unable to drive out ourselves. How would we have expected that Your Excellency the Marshal would clear out the filth for the benefit of our insignificant state, coming from afar with righteous troops, exposing yourself to sun and dew in the open field? Initially, we did not know the day that your great army would enter the borders. Moreover, the Gitan bandits were blocking the roads. So we delayed and did not in time inquire in the neighborhood. We beg to consider this most obnoxious, and we are therefore tremblingly ashamed and hope that you will magnanimously forgive us. We had only just heard that the Gitan bandits had moved into the walled city of Gangdong to defend themselves, and so we believed that they were merely people already in jail, not worth worrying about. Then we sent people to bring thanks and all the same time inquire about your health. These emissaries had not yet been able to start on their journey when, again, there were emergency reports, and so we actually heard that the band had left the fort and submitted, all being executed or made prisoner to the joy of the whole nation who clapped their hands in unison. This is truly an example of the righteous behavior of a large state helping a weak one and having pity on its neighbor. Whereas, for our small state, it is a good fortune one encounters, but once in 10,000 generations. We are moved by your great kindness. Unquote. And here's how the missive ends. Quote, now, we have roughly prepared some meager wine and fruit and other gifts, and especially dispatched certain officials to bring them to you under escort. Their quantities are fully entered on a separate list. In fear and trembling, we submit this petition. First, I should point out that this is the first communication with the Mongols that we have recorded in Korean history, so that's pretty notable. But Henthorne also goes on to say that this missive is also notable because it makes claim, or it makes the claim that Goryeo had already beaten the Gitan, which he says was undoubtedly a diplomatic tactic to play down the importance of the Mongol military action. I didn't quite read it that way, but I'll take his word for it. What is clear to me is how obliquely written this message is. Now, I don't come from the world of diplomacy, so I'm guessing that you know double talk is probably pretty common in that world. But what strikes me is more kind of the tone and the wording of the missive. It is at once ingratiating and servile, but it's so overly ingratiating that it can be read as almost belligerent. I also love the middle section where it's just chock full of excuses for being late. 
And it reminds me of an employee who is late to work and has to explain it to his boss. I mean, there's just a lot of detail there about why they were late and, you know, why they were, it took them so long to respond. In a way, it's it's really the definition of passive aggressive. And, and the frequent use of superlatives, unfortunately, reminds me of a news report from North Korea television. I also thought at the end there that it was funny how they itemized their gifts to the Mongols on a separate sheet of paper. It's like, thanks for getting rid of these foreigners. And as a gift, we're sending you this box of chocolates, which we bought at Costco for $20, not including tax. Here's a receipt as proof of purchase. But of course, this, I'm sure, had a lot of uh, diplomatic reasons as well. So ultimately, I think also this communication is an excellent symbol symbol of Korea's lot in life. Always having to deal with the bully of the hour, sometimes fighting back, but in desperate times, instead, you kind of have to flatter and cajole and manipulate to buy yourself more time. And for sure, the Mongols had caught Korea at a very desperate time indeed. So we'll end it here for now. In our next episode, we'll see how the love fest between the Goryeo and the Mongols ends, the honeymoon is over, and the true consequences of this new quote-unquote older brother-younger brother relationship becomes clear in a very frightening way. Talk to you then. Oh, <laughs> boy.